When I was in college was right about when everybody in the world, it seemed, started using email as a primary form of communication. Uh, It wasn't brand new, but I remember my freshman year in college was the first time I had an email address. And in fact, it took me longer generally to send an email than just to write somebody a letter uh, because I had a dial-up connection on my old computer in my room, or I could use the computer lab on campus, but I had to wait in line for an hour. Uh, But what I noticed was almost immediately upon the introduction of email to our lives, we also were introduced to the email hoax. Uh, Some of you know that almost as soon as people could send emails, they started sending chain letters and hoaxes and all sorts of messages promising free things that never materialized. Uh, My favorite one and one of the first ones was this one. It said something along these lines. Hello, everybody. My name is Bill Gates. I have just written up an email. Yeah, my name is, I realize everybody knows who he is, right? So it's not like you're sitting there going, honey, have you heard of somebody whose name is Bill Gates? I have just written up an email tracing program that traces everyone to whom this message is forwarded to. I'm experimenting with this and I need your help. Forward this to everyone you know and if it reaches a thousand people, everyone on the list will receive a thousand dollars at my expense. Enjoy your friend, Bill Gates. Now, on the surface, this is ridiculous, right? You read it and you go, now Bill Gates doesn't even have enough money to pay a thousand dollars to all the tens of millions of people who forwarded this email. Uh, However, I got this email dozens of times. And it was always uh, with a prelude that somebody would add on to it, something to this effect. This probably isn't true, but just in case, I'm sending it to all my friends. And so somebody else would forward it on, and over time it even added extra elements, things along the lines of somebody would write in in big caps at the top, this is true, I received a check for $1,000. And then they would forward it on and forward it on and forward it on. That was one of the very first email hoaxes. But as you know, it's not just email now, right? It's Facebook. It's every time you jump online, there seems to be some sort of thing promising something free. If you forward this or you share this, Red Lobster will send you a free $50 gift card for doing nothing at all. And they almost never turn out to be true. And so if you're like me, perhaps you have developed a sort of deep-seated skepticism when somebody comes along and says, hey, I'm going to give you something for free for doing nothing except this one little thing. Pass this along, forward this to a friend, share this status, and I will give you money for free. Most of us, if we're honest, we have a skepticism when somebody says something is free. Now, the reason I'm talking about that this morning is because I think when it comes to the gospel, we often feel that same sense of skepticism and maybe even a little bit of fear when we hear the message that eternal life, the the greatest gift in the universe, right, that I could spend eternity with God forever in the presence of Jesus, that that would be a free gift. When we hear the news that Jesus paid for the penalty of all our sin and all we have to do is say, Jesus, I believe in what you did. I trust that you died for my sin and you rose again. We hear that. And we hear it is an absolutely free gift, eternal life, that God gives to those who believe in Jesus. Something in us, very much like when we receive that type of email hoax, something in us says, that sounds too good to be reality. 
And in fact, if you follow the history of the Christian church, the history of the Christian church is largely a history of people deciding the free gift of eternal life sounds too good to be true, so we need to add some conditions to it. And so all too often what gets added to the free gift of eternal life is works, right? If you work hard enough, if you do enough good things, then your good will outweigh your bad and God will evaluate your life and say, okay, you're good enough. Or maybe you have to believe in Jesus and do something else, right? Or on the other end of things, all too often what happens is people say, look, you you get in for free. Jesus gives you eternal life for free. But if you don't keep up with good works, if you disobey enough, God will take it away. We're going to talk about this topic this morning. The the theological term for what we're talking about is eternal security. How do I know that once I have trusted in Jesus Christ, that is a gift, eternal life is a gift that God will never take away. I return to this topic every so often because it's so foundational to what we believe as Christians. Next week, we're going to dive into some sermons about Easter, and then we have another series coming. But before we did that, I wanted to return to this really critical topic this morning. How can I know for sure that once I have trusted in Jesus, that is a free gift that God will never take away from me? My guess is that there are some of you this morning that you struggle with that question. Right? You struggle with that question maybe because of your own life. Maybe you have sinned in some way that causes you to pull back and say, wow, I never thought that I could be that bad. And if I am that bad, maybe God will take away the gift of eternal life. Or maybe you're struggling with it because of a friend or a family member. And the question that revolves in your mind is you think, man, I, I remember when that friend, my brother, my sister, my roommate in college, I remember when that person believed in Jesus and followed Jesus and now they are far from Jesus. And the question is, have they lost the life that God gives for free? All right, so we're going to look at this question this morning of what we call eternal security. And here's the, the main point that I want to get across this morning. It's simply this. The main point that I want to get across this morning. Eternal life is a free gift. We did not earn it, and we cannot lose it. Eternal life is a free gift. We didn't earn it, and we cannot lose it. As we read through the New Testament, over and over again, we see this point affirmed. And really, where I want to land this morning is this. I hope that all of us will walk away with the deep-seated assurance that if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, your future is secure. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, your future is secure. Now, maybe you walked in this morning and you just kind of walked in and you don't know Jesus yet. My prayer for you is that this morning you will understand all that God has done to bring you to himself, all that God has done in Jesus to give you eternal life and that this may be the morning you trust in Jesus so that you will walk out with a deep-seated assurance that you will spend eternity with God. And if you know him, here's my prayer, that you will walk out with this deep assurance that you know Jesus Christ. And the reason is this, and we'll see this as the sermon goes on. I believe that security is the best foundation for growth. Let me say that again. Security is the best foundation for growth. That is, once I have that understanding that God loves me in Jesus Christ, 
he has given me eternal life and he will not revoke it, then I am free to walk by faith and not by fear. I'm free, as the author of Hebrews says, to press on to maturity in my walk with Jesus instead of continually coming back to this question of am I in or am I out? That's what I want for us this morning. So I want to look at a few lines of evidence from the New Testament this morning. How can we know for sure that we have eternal life? How can we be sure biblically of our salvation. This is the doctrine of eternal security that we're going to look at this morning. How can we be sure of our salvation? The first line of evidence is this. We didn't pay for it. We didn't pay for it. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. If you were with us last fall, we went through the whole book of Ephesians. Critical verse from the book of Ephesians. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. In other words, biblically, here's what Paul is getting at in the book of Ephesians. He's saying this, you're saved by what he calls grace. Now the Greek word for grace, that's the word charis. You would spell it in English, C-H-A-R-I-S. We get the word, for example, charity from the word charis, from the word grace. What is charity? Somebody would give you something you need for free. Right? At, the, at the core of the idea of grace is that it is a gift. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. In other words, you didn't pay for your salvation. You didn't bring anything to the table. Jesus brought eternal life. What did you bring? What did you bring to the equation when it comes to salvation? A giant pile of sin. All right, biblically, that's what we bring to the equation. So we don't lose it because we didn't pay for it in the first place. I think this is hard for us to get a grasp on because almost nothing else in our life is truly free. Sometimes people talk about salvation and they use the analogy of insurance, right? I have my fire insurance, people will say. All right, here's where that analogy breaks down. Think for a minute about all the insurance policies that you have purchased in your life. How does insurance work? Well, every month or every year, I pay a premium to the insurance company. And theoretically, then, if something goes wrong, my house burns down, my car gets in an accident, theoretically, they will pay me money because of that accident or tragedy or whatever it may be. Now, in reality, we all know if you've tried to file a claim, it doesn't always work that way. And even if you get the money, you've actually paid for it, haven't you? For months, for years, you've paid for it. And so often then when we hear God will give something for free, he gives eternal life for free, we don't have to pay for it. That's really hard for us to grasp because we want to think that we would bring something to the equation. And here's here's the reality. Every other world religion is a system where you pay for eternal life by what you do. Every other world religion is a system where you pay for eternal life by what you do. Islam works that way. Even Buddhism, although their conception of eternal life is different, and Hinduism, if you're good enough, you achieve eternal life. Only Christianity says God provides eternal life for free on the basis of what Jesus has done. Some of you have friends who are a part of the Mormon belief system. I found a statement, this is on their website just this past week. Here's how they conceive of eternal life. Salvation is conditional, depending on an individual's 
continuing in faithfulness or enduring to the end in keeping the commandments of God. In other words, you have to do good enough for long enough in order to earn eternal life. Years ago, I had some Mormon missionaries come over to my house and we engaged in a conversation on this very topic. And I said, look, I I don't understand how you can say that works contribute to your salvation. Because when I read a passage like Ephesians chapter two, what I see is that eternal life is by grace, right? And so this young man, he he said, well, here's how I, I would explain it. He said, imagine for a minute that you are seven or eight years old And what you want, what you want more than anything else in the world is a particular bicycle from Target or whatever it is. And that bicycle costs $200. And so you go to your dad and you say, dad, I don't have $200. Can you buy the bicycle for me? And your dad says, son, I won't buy it for you. I won't buy it all for you. I'll tell you what, why don't you save your money and you try to buy that bicycle? And so you go and you, you work and you do extra chores and you take extra little jobs around the neighborhood, washing people's windows and you scrape it together all summer and you come up with $3.22. And you say, dad, I'm $196.78 short. And your dad says, okay, I'll put in the rest of the money. You have your 322 and I'll put in the rest. And they said, that's how salvation works. And I said, no, that's not how salvation works. Because you don't have $3.22. What you have is a massive debt created by your sin. You bring nothing to the table. Jesus brings everything. Why does this matter then when we talk about eternal life? Because we didn't pay for it. It is not taken away on the basis of our works. In other words, our works didn't contribute to it in the first place. Therefore, God does not take away on the basis of works what he gave for free through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we didn't pay for it. Secondly, Jesus completely paid for it. Jesus completely paid for it. And I hinted at this just a moment ago, but I want to look at a couple of passages. Not only did we not pay for it, Jesus completely paid for it. One of my favorite passages from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he is perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Here's what the writer of Hebrews is getting at. Think about the Old Testament sacrificial system for just a minute. The priests in the temple or in the tabernacle before that, they made offerings for the people's sin, right? On a day in and day out basis, if you sinned in some way or you violated the law, you would bring an animal, or you would bring a grain offering or a drink offering and the priest would stand and offer that on your behalf, right? And so in that offering, there was at least a temporary atonement for your sin. In other words, you'd bring a lamb, the priest would offer it and God would not kill you for the moment. And then year after year, that high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and make an offering once a year for any sins that they had overlooked. 
But if you were a priest in the temple, if you were on duty in the temple, there were no recliners in the temple. There were no sofas, there were no chairs that you could sit in. You were always on your feet because there was always another offering. There was always another sacrifice that had to be made because there was always another sin that had to be covered, right? And so the the writer of Hebrews says, look, the priest stands daily. He stands up year after year, day after day, making sacrifice. But here's what Jesus did. Jesus went and made one offering, of himself. Why? Because he's fully God and fully man. 100% God, 100% man. That means he can make an infinite sacrifice for the sins of everybody for all time. Jesus died. In a few weeks on Easter, we'll celebrate. Jesus rose again. He ascends to the right hand of the Father. And then he pulls up a chair and he sits down and he says, the work is done. This past week, we spent some time painting portions of our house that needed to be painted. So I was up on a ladder painting. I had a roller and was painting. In the process, we also cleared out some furniture in preparation for some more furniture. It took several days. And during those several days, I did take periodic breaks, of course, to sleep or to eat or whatever. But for the most part, I was standing up working on this project. But on the last day of the project, when I set down the paintbrush for the last time and cleaned everything up, What did I do? Well, I went to sit down, but I realized we'd actually cleared out all the furniture in the living room. So I went back to my room and I sat on my bed and then I laid down and I took a nap. Why? Because the work was done. Maybe you mowed the lawn this week. Maybe you did some house projects and when you were done, you sat down and you rested. That's the imagery of the book of Hebrews. Jesus completes what is necessary to complete to secure our salvation, not only for the past, but for the future. And then he ascends into heaven and he sits down as the high priest at the right hand of God to say that the work is completely finished, completely paid for. Colossians chapter two. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That big debt that you brought into the equation in your relationship with God. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, he took that certificate of debt and he pounded it up on the cross and it says absolutely paid yesterday, today, and forever. Nothing will separate us then from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Seven or eight years ago, Shannon and I went out to dinner at Outback here in town And on the way into the restaurant, we ran into a couple that we knew from church. We said, hello. We sat down. We ate our food. We ordered what we normally would order. And then at the end of the meal, like you do, we told the waiter, we're ready for the check. And he came over and he said, the check has already been covered. That family we ran into on the way into the restaurant decided in advance to pay for our meal. We didn't know they were going to do it when we were ordering. Not only that, but they didn't know how much it was going to cost, right? They just left the waiter their credit card number and they said, whatever they order, go ahead and pay for it. I wish I had known (laughs) as we were eating the meal that the cost was covered. Right now I say that tongue in cheek, 
But the reality is they didn't know. They didn't know. They just said it's all paid for. What's astounding to me is God knew absolutely the cost of salvation and how much it would cost his son. And yet he said, we're going to pay for it. Paid in full. Now, probably the biggest objection to this understanding of the gospel is, well, yeah, but then if it's absolutely free, it's absolutely paid for in full, can't that be abused? And certainly it can be. Another restaurant situation. When I was the college pastor at Grace, once a year on our college retreat, we would take our staff out at the beginning of the retreat and we would provide a meal for them near the retreat site at our expense, at the expense of the church, right? And we learned very quickly that we did not want to tell them who was paying for the meal until the meal was almost over, right? Because consciously or not, if they knew they weren't paying, they would order more. Grace is susceptible to abuse. The reality is that that exact problem is addressed repeatedly in the New Testament. You look at Romans chapter 8. What does Paul say? Why shouldn't we just keep on sinning so that grace will abound? In other words, he says, look, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, when you sin, grace abounds. You sin more, grace abounds more. Why shouldn't we just keep on going? If that's the way grace works, right? And Paul will answer that ultimately to say something we don't have time to get into in detail this morning, but essentially this, that you are a completely different person. Why would you want to go back to slavery, to something that God set you free from? And as you walk through the New Testament, certainly there are real consequences for Christians who abuse grace. I don't want to minimize that. But none of those consequences are ever that God will revoke eternal life because Jesus paid it all. We sing it periodically here on Sunday morning. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Jesus paid every debt I owe because I could pay none of it. And so I have a rock solid assurance that what God has given, he will not revoke. I didn't pay for it. Jesus paid all of it. Thirdly, God fiercely guards it. God fiercely guards it. I want to show you a couple of other passages here in this regard. First from Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? In other words, for those who know Jesus Christ, the charge that you deserve to go to hell, it doesn't ultimately stick. Because Jesus paid for eternal life through his death and resurrection and gave it for free. So at the end of Romans 8, Paul would say, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And yes, this is absolutely in a context talking about how God has given salvation and all who trust in Jesus and all that God has chosen can know that they have eternal life. And so nothing in heaven and on earth, and that includes you or me. Are you a created thing? Absolutely. A few years ago, 
I ran across a news story. This was from the University of Warwick in London, England. And here's what happened that one day on campus, some pedestrians uh, were greeted with a surprise because right near a walkway that they would traverse to get from class to class, uh, a goose had established its nest. And so in an effort to protect its nest and its young, this mother goose was attacking students who were walking by. So another student, as uh, I think is a brilliant idea, uh, set up shop and began to take photos of the goose. I'll show you all that in, actually, let me go to the photo here of the goose. Um, so began to take photos of the goose chasing students down on campus. Uh, this particular guy, <laughs> he was deeply concerned, and so he hit the deck. You can actually see, if you look back here, here's Daddy Goose just kind of watching all of this <laughs> in the background. I assume the nest is somewhere back here. All right, that's a mother goose determined to protect her babies. I saw another story as I was looking into this talk this week. This was from 2016 in Florida. It wasn't a goose or an animal. It was, it was a human being. A, a woman was in a store, a dollar store, I think, with her 13-year-old daughter when a man with ill intent came in the store and tried to grab her daughter away. And uh, somebody released the video, the security video, And what you saw was this mom as this man grabbed her daughter. And as soon as she saw what was happening, she jumped on top of her daughter's legs and grabbed her ankles and began to pull her back. And then she held on with one hand to her daughter. And with the other hand, she began to beat this guy with her fists until he dropped her daughter and he ran out of the store. And he was arrested. Because that fierce maternal love said nothing will snatch her from my hand. Right, that's what Jesus says in John 10, 27 to 29. I know my sheep that the Father has given me. He says, no one will snatch them from my hand. Imagine the love of that mother paired with the perfect and infinite power of God. So that when Satan tries to steal you away, when sin and death try to steal you away, God says, that's not going to happen. Nothing will snatch you out of his hand. And so God fiercely guards those whom he loves. So we didn't pay for it. Jesus paid for it all. God guards it. And fourthly, the Spirit guarantees it. The Spirit of God guarantees eternal life. This is Ephesians chapter 1. Again, if you were with us last fall, you'll remember Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 to 14. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Now this is a mouthful, but essentially what he's getting at is this imagery that when you believed in Jesus Christ, God gave the Holy Spirit as a seal, right? You think about a letter where there would be a seal right where that letter would open. 
And often in the ancient world, they would have a wax seal that had to be broken before you could open a letter that somebody sent you. The Spirit seals you to say, you belong to God. And that seal also acts as a guarantee. It says a guarantee of the redemption of God's own possession. That is that that seal, the Holy Spirit, is a guarantee that Jesus is coming back for you. Some of you this morning, you dropped your kids off either in the nursery or in the elementary area next door. And when you dropped them off, what did they do? Well, they put a name tag on your kid, right? That name tag has a number on it. If they're particularly small, they probably put it on their back, right? So that that kid can't get it off. And then what did they do? They gave you a corresponding name tag so that when the service is over, if you so choose, you may go redeem them. It's a seal. It says that child is mine. And I have the corresponding seal. And so you'll go back and redeem your children. That's the role of the Holy Spirit described in Ephesians chapter 1. If you have believed in Jesus, he has set his spirit on you as a seal, as a guarantee. And in fact, as you look throughout Scripture, when the Spirit indwells those, lives in those who know Jesus Christ, He changes you forever. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. You've gone from death to life, from lost to found. The Spirit of God has permanently transformed you into somebody new. Now, it doesn't mean you will always operate like somebody new, but instead it means you have a new relationship with God. You have a new capacity to follow Him. You have a new understanding of who you are before God because the Spirit has transformed you. Nothing is ever the same. I have a vivid memory of my freshman year in college going away to Texas A&M. I moved from Dallas down to College Station. And I remember at the time, my dad saying something along the lines of, it will never be the same when you come back home. Right? And I remember thinking, well, how, that, how could that be? I am the same person. But I went away to A&M. I was, I was here for six weeks. And after six weeks, I went back home to see some friends from high school to celebrate homecoming for some reason. And it was true. When I got back to Dallas and I began to interact with those friends from high school, some of you had this experience. It was as if something had irreversibly changed. We had moved from living with our parents to beginning to live on our own. We had gone from childhood in some sense to adulthood. And something had irreversibly transformed those relationships. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 is telling us. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God has changed you. You are no longer who you once were, and it's an irreversible transformation because God guards you and because he's paid for all of our salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ. We didn't pay for it. Jesus paid for all of it. God fiercely guards it. 
and the Spirit guarantees it. So we can know that we have eternal life. So as we wrap up, I want to ask one more question then. Why does this matter? This is a relatively theological topic we're diving into today, but why does it matter? And I mentioned this at the beginning. Here's why this matters. Because security is the best foundation for spiritual growth. Security is the best foundation for spiritual growth. Let me read briefly from Hebrews chapter 5. The writer of Hebrews says this to his audience, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So he uses this illustration. Look, once you're grown up, you don't drink milk like a baby does anymore. If we went out to lunch after church and you ordered and then you said, hold on, I need my sippy cup. And you pulled it out and began to drink from it. We would conclude something has gone wrong in your maturity process. That's not normal. At some point you begin to move to solid food. And then he goes on and he says, therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. What is he getting at? This group that he's writing to, they didn't have the foundation correct. And because they didn't understand the basis of their salvation, they kept having to go back to it and back to it and back to it. And so their church was in turmoil and immaturity and sin and insecurity because they didn't have the foundation right. Security in Jesus Christ is the best foundation for spiritual growth. Think about it this way. If you want your children to begin to obey is the best strategy to every day tell them. If you forget your chores, if you talk back, we're going to move away and leave you here. Well, what would that produce? Would that produce obedience? Maybe temporarily it would produce obedience. But over the long haul, what would it produce? It would produce fear that would lead to anger that would lead to resentment, that would then lead to what? A bitterness and division between you and the child. What is the best foundation for maturity? It's lavishing upon that child security and love to say, because I love you, I want you to grow up. Because I love you, I'm never leaving. So now let's begin to work on what your character ought to be. Security is the best foundation. For spiritual growth. This is why right at the end of 1 John, John would say the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life in it is in his son. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the son of God. Why? So that you may know that you have eternal life. So that you may know that you have eternal life. Because from that foundation will spring maturity 
and growth to say, I know I'm loved by an infinite and powerful sovereign God who gave his only son, who crossed space and time to die for me, to rise again, and who has extended life to me for free. Do you want to know him better now? Do you want to follow that God who loves you so much? And everything in our hearts and minds ought to scream out, yes. We love, why? Because he first loved us. And so that security becomes a foundation for growth and for maturity and for love and for all of the fruit of the spirit that God wants to work in us. So again, I mentioned at the start, what what is my hope for the morning? My hope is wherever you are, that you will walk out with a rock solid assurance that you have eternal life. If you walked in this morning and you're unsure, you say, you know, I really don't know if I have eternal life. Maybe you have never trusted in Jesus Christ. Maybe that time has never come in your life where you say, God, I trust that Jesus died for my sin, paid my debt and rose again. And if I believe in him, I can have life. If that's the case, I would encourage you, come and talk to me this morning. I'll be here after the service or talk with a friend that you're with to walk out and know you have eternal life. If you know you've trusted Jesus Christ, but you find yourself, like many of us, lying awake at night, thinking, am I gonna lose it? Have I already lost it? I can remember a period in my life where I worried about this almost daily. The message of scripture is you can know you have eternal life if you have believed in Jesus Christ because the work has been done and God guards you fiercely because he loves you. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for your word. Thank you for all that it has to teach us, and we thank you most of all for your son, Jesus Christ, whose death and resurrection we're preparing to celebrate in a special way over the next few weeks. Because of his death, because of his resurrection, we know that we will spend eternity with you. I pray that you would solidify that reality in our hearts and our minds. I pray that you would help us as we struggle with doubt and as we seek to increase in faith. Help us trust you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.